welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And at the end of every month, the last episode of the month, um, we always do with Emily Jashinsky. Emily is a um, is a senior fellow with us over at IWF, but she is also the culture editor at The Federalist. Uh, she works with Young America's Foundation, training up the next generation of conservative, I, I don't even know what to call them anymore, journalism, uh, <laughs> has, has a reputation. Um, a well-deserved ill reputation now, but you are raising up the next generation of truth tellers through journalism. Let's put it that way. Um, and she's also on counterpoints and now every Wednesday, right. With Ryan Grimm um, on uh, crystal ball and Sagar and Jetty's show breaking points. So you can see her all over the place. Uh, she's our, our favorite. Um, this is my favorite episode to record every month. Cause I'm so glad you said that. Cause I have so much fun too. in this. I mean, it's the, the dream is to get a job where you get to hang out with your friends and uh, talk politics and, and other cultural uh, and, and talk about TV shows like we did last time um, <laughs> and then call it work anyways. Um, but it, it's always great to be with you, Emily. And I wanted to kick it off with some of the more substantive items um, on our docket. We'll get to the le- less substantive over time, but <laughs> um but one of the substantive things I wanted to ask you about, especially um, since you are, you know, you're, you're, uh, you have this uh, weekly show over with Breaking Points, you've been very involved with sort of uh, realignment sort of figures more broadly and realignment politics and this potentiality of maybe, um, you know, being able to break apart the current coalitions or at least the old coalitions of left and right, put them back together in some kind of populist way that connects the two horseshoe ends of left populism and right populism. Um, Which is not to say you've always been optimistic about that project, of course, but um, there's an interesting moment, I think, for that project coming up that's going to come into sharper relief the longer this House, um, Republican House, continues to be in power. And so we're coming to this issue right off the heels of what might be called a sort of anti-establishment right-wing populist victory, right, Um, where a handful of members in the House were able to force enough speaker votes uh, not to to dislodge Kevin McCarthy at the end of the day, um, but then to get a substantive number of concessions. And it seems like they're going to be using their new power uh, to play pretty hard in these um, debt limit negotiation uh, fights and b- other budget fights. So it looks like they want to use that power to cut uh, substantially some of the out of control spending in government. At the same time, uh, in the last few days, Trump, um, who a lot of these members identify as like super MAGA, right? Um, Trump has come in and said, don't you dare touch Social Security, right? Um and just as a ground to, to sort of uh, set the table for this in terms of just the facts before we get into any what is right and what's politically expedient and so on. Um, there is no real way to adjust the American debt trajectory without touching entitlements. Um, Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare make up the majority of the budget. And in fact, they they between just those three programs, we are using all of the revenue that we're currently collecting, right? So all the taxes that what we... Um, uh, are paying are covering only those three programs, basically in terms of amount of money, and all of the rest of the spending is debt, right? So that's the entire Pentagon budget. It's the entire um, discretionary spending budget that we argue over each year. So that's kind of the background reality of the way that U.S. debt is structured. But 
So what do you think about this this rift that's opening up? Because the, the fights in the House sound very much like Tea Party Redux. And so you have this kind of Tea Party or right populist um, uprising against the establishment from that direction. And it's been melded with Trumpism and populism. But it seems like on these issues, they might pull apart, as seen by Trump coming out and very firmly saying, as he always has as a candidate, no, 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 we're not going to touch Medicare. We're not going to touch Social Security. So what do you think about all the dynamics going on here and how they're going to play out? One of the more interesting anecdotes that is in some ways an answer to your question is J.D. Vance. Not not surprising, but interesting. J.D. Vance coming out in on Trump's side in this conversation. So it's very interesting to have um, the, the Tea Party populism in the Trump era be maneuvered or, or sort of be leveraged using the debt ceiling as leverage. Because to your point, as Donald Trump said, everyone was going to have health care. That's, uh, you know, after running Mitt Romney, who was running against Obamacare. And it's not like Trump had any plan. It's not like any Republican really running in 2016 had any plan. Um, but it was this idea that we're not, this is not austerity. We're not going to conservative austerity. That's not populism. And it's not what the Republican Party thinks is politically expedient at this moment in history. So where does that take us? Um, it's, there's an answer, I think. And we've seen it from people like Russ Vogt. Um, we've seen it just sort of floated when I think Jim Jordan tweeted, uh, this was one of my favorite tweets of the last month, God, guns, and gas stoves. It sounds really silly, um, but that's sort of a crystallization of what's happening, which is this is tyranny. Um, th this is not about debt and deficits. We're negotiating with the debt ceiling to shift the Overton window to shrink the size of government. Now, I think everybody should be aware that's a drop in the bucket. Uh, to the point that you made about entitlements, you could implement Brian Riedel at Manhattan Institute uh, has done some Dis, de, de, depressing doesn't even begin to do justice to the calculations that he's done on the debt and the deficit, uh, which, by the way, are probably worsening inflation right now, are probably worsening the, the lives of the average American, uh, whether it's financially uh, or, or, or whether it's at their kitchen table or in other financial ways. It's probably having an effect. Um, and if he, he looks at it and he says, you could implement every populist left a proposal when it comes to tax increases and you're not making a dent in the debtor deficit. He's, he shows how you could eliminate the entire department of defense and you're not making a debt. You're not even coming close to coming up with a balanced budget. Um, so this is a, a, so much bigger than either like the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Uh, it's something that's looming over our head and demands imagination. But these debt ceiling negotiations are not going to be imagination. They're going to be, I think, uh, trying to leverage the position that these populist House Republicans have found themselves in with a, a one slim per a slim one-person margin motion to vacate, meaning they can challenge Kevin McCarthy pretty easily um, to, to lose the speakership. What they're going to be doing is, is pushing for cuts to curb uh, the sort of gas stove tyranny where you have a bureaucrat um, in some branch of the executive branch, uh, a branch of a branch, saying, oh, on a whim, maybe we should do this, this or that, um, and dramatically 
changing the way that business is done, that people live their lives. Um, and so I think that's the, the, the argument that's congealing. Um, I think there's some real merit to it, but if they're sort of pitching it as, you know, like and one more thing I would say, Inez, is like right now when our social fabric is as tattered as it is, if your priority is taking away uh, people's health care. I mean, I, like, I've hated this argument forever that the debt can wait, the debt can wait, the debt can wait. But if you're going to approach Social Security, Medicare, M- Medicaid, um, or any food stamps, whatever it is, if you're going to approach that, you need to have a very robust plan for stabilizing that you are like ripping the rug out from under all of these people right now is a recipe for disaster, um, for inflamed tensions. Like I, I think dependence is evil. I, I can't stand it. I think it's a, there are a lot of unintended consequences that that come with it. Um, but ripping out the rug from under people is, is really, if that's your priority right now, it has to be augmented. Um, and, and if we can sort of come up with like an Andrew Yang, um, you know, creative, imaginative way that both parties can get behind to, uh, you know, help rein in the debt and deficit and, and make these programs better, fine. But if we're talking about cutting it right now, it's not just politically toxic. Um, you, I think we would be getting into some really frightening territory, at least in the short term. And that should be considered as well. What do you think about some of the critiques that, um, I guess, for all the sound and fury of, of the focus on um, on sort of populist issues on the right, that this is degenerating into, and, and I, I really disagree with these critiques to be clear, but um, you know, like something like Sarab Akmari would say, or has said in compact that, um, you know, that, that we're degenerating into a kind of virtue signaling, um, cultural virtue signaling that in fact, uh, this realignment is entirely based on smoke and, and mirrors in terms of saying, as, as you just kind of alluded to actually like God guns and, and gas stoves, right? But um, so there is, I, I mean, I agree that there's a deeper argument to be had there. And I don't think cultural issues are at all a distraction. Um, and I think they're the heart of, of, in many ways, of our politics and, and the most important part of our politics. But but there is that critique, right? So how would you answer that critique? Like, Because on the face of it, it looks like, oh, hey, like, um, there was this conservative populist uprising. Um, and what we're going to get are cuts, and austerity um, out of it instead of some of these other um, cultural topics that they, they were talking about. So in many ways that those cuts might be, as you pointed out, those cuts might be against the interests of, of voters who are um, fed up with the Democratic Party for cultural reasons, but are more economically left, but considering becoming Republican and continuing to vote Republican. I would say it's too early to tell um, because, you know, my, my first instinct is to say, well, actually, there's a lot of really good policies that individually don't seem like a really big deal, but that have emerged, will emerge um, as a part of that sort of populist realignment. Um, and again, like this is not, we're not talking about sea changes, but there's some good stuff that's happened on antitrust. There's some good stuff that's happened in terms of media. Um, all of this media that pops up that uh, gives people better information. Um, and p- there's a huge market for it. And people are actually consuming this alternative independent media. I mean, like what Barry Weiss is doing is incredible. And that's absolutely a project of the realignment. Uh, there's there's no other way to, to think about it. You have left and right coming together, desperate for something. It's not like 
pretending to be neutral. Um, but like, we can't just because it's just because it's not something that passed through Congress, like dismiss that. I think that's a really big deal. Um, there are other policies that people are going to get behind, whether they're, uh, tech safety, uh, pornography. Um, there, there are real policy, but real policies coming out of this marriage. Um, so I think it's too early to say because you still have Ukraine on the table. You still have immigration on the table. Um, you still have, I mean, there's just a lot more to be said. We're like not even 10 years into this at this point. Um, and so obviously if there's, unless you're, unless you're fully subscribed to MMT, um, and you believe in modern monetary theory, you believe in minting the minting coin, the, the trillion dollar coin as a solution. Yeah. Exactly. The, there is, it seems ridiculous to me. Like, I don't know anything about that level of economics, but that just seems like a fake solution. <laughs> anybody's problems this is why we never should have left the gold standard because it's not as ridiculous as it sounds like um those two advocates for the trillion dollar coin they're talking about how to roll tanks yes or whatever and there's a Washington yes. post reporter saying like oh hmm well that sounds like a difficult thing to to sell to Jerome Powell or something like that. Like it's a totally normal thing to suggest that uh, you should override the Supreme Court and and roll tanks to the Federal Reserve. They the literally way, said someone. send troops to the Fed. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, uh, a, a good friend of mine um, was talking about this, and he said he was he was like, imagine if one of the the Ron Paul Goldbug types were talking about. <laughs> rolling tanks the fed and then i don't know like the the wall street journal picked it up and and, and thought it was like a, <laughs> and considered it as a reasonable theory you know that's actually a um, really good point because it's a good example of like nut picking in the media where like we had so much conversation about um militaristic uh ron paul people uh but they could easily elevate these guys and create a narrative out of that they just won't and neither of them is newsworthy enough to do that so they're better left on the fringes, uh, even though these people have a direct channel into the Washington Post. So uh, anyway, the, the it's just basically like there is, you have to, it doesn't have to be austerity. We don't know what it would look like, but we're caught in this trap where it's like, it's either austerity or socialism. Um, and I, I don't think that's helpful for anyone. I'm not calling for like a third way or, you know, whatever. Um, but there has to be something more imaginative than, than mint the coin or, you know, whatever they say about throwing grandma off the cliff. <laughs> not that anyone ever wanted to do that. Um, but there, there just have to be better options and they're not in the, within the Overton window right now. Um, there, nobody's talking about them, but it doesn't mean that. And this is what I would take issue with, especially with some folks on the, the new right. Saurabh might be among them. Um, I don't think he would call himself new right. So No, he wouldn't anymore. No, he, yeah. he surely wouldn't anymore. Um, but the it's not pro-worker. It is not pro-middle class to uh, create or to allow these programs to be insolvent for the sake of your own um, you know, political career. Um, that is that is not pro-worker. That is not pro-middle class because there's evidence suggesting that inflation is worse because of this. There's evidence suggesting that right now the average American is getting more than they put in to Social Security and to Medicaid. Um, they're, they're doing way better. They're coming out on top. Um, but but what happens when someone busts their butt and, and puts money where the government forced them to put money for a really long time and, and doesn't get it? That's 
BS, um, to, to say the least. Um, and so it's not like populist and pro worker to just be like, Oh, us, no austerity ever, unless you have a, a, a good solution. Cause this is just like, I, I don't want to sound like Paul Ryan, but it's, or Mitt Romney, but it's like, it's truly not sustainable. Um, and in a way that really hurts people. So there just has to be more imagination about it. And it, it can't involve just cutting. Um, or just ballooning the government to the point where it can take away your freaking gas stoves on a whim. There's there's a bit of a um, kind of chicken little problem to this, I think, because on the one hand, it's clearly true that this can't go on forever. We cannot keep financing this level of debt forever. But on the other hand, we've heard that so many times that I think people are really not going to take it seriously until there really is a hard stop. Right. Um, and you don't see it in your paycheck. You don't see it in your everyday life. You don't see money going away from you. Um, and you can't like picture it with inflation. It's just hard even for economists to pin that down. But it's, it's really clear. And I do think like, actually, if, if we were able to have a sane conversation, like a reasonable conversation between citizens, even I think if you presented um, the, the, just the, the financial uh, parameters of social security, to most people, they'll understand like the, the parameters, the demographic parameters are not what they were when Social Security was implemented, right? Like Social Security was implemented um, and the, the ages um, or age of retirement and and everything were implemented when people uh, did not live nearly as long and uh, when they had a lot more kids, right? So like there were a lot more workers contributing into the system um, and fewer old people living for fewer years. Now, it's it's wonderful that people live for so many years after retirement. That's that's a wonderful um, thing and, and a wonderful piece of of advancement on our part that people are able to live longer lives and spend more time with time with their families. But if you're not having six kids and and people are no longer dying at sixty nine, um, this this program is just not like on uh, on the face of it, it's not sustainable over time. And it is the most enormous. Um, unfunded liability of, of the federal government. Right. Um, and it's just, it, that's just, the, those are the facts. I'm sorry. I know it's unpopular and I know that people, and I think that was the, the, the biggest um, sort of uh, victory of, of the new deal was investing everybody in these programs. And I think that's why um, people scoff at like universal programs, but that's part of the reason I want a a universal ESA program, a universal school choice program. When you invest everybody in the program, um, then everybody has a a stake in maintaining it. And those programs are become completely impossible to cut. Like, I I don't think there's any way we're ever going to get rid of social security, but it seems like at some point, and those analysis, I think it flips upside down in, in, uh, 2035, Right. So it used to be 2037. Now it's 2035 where it will officially run out of money. Um, you know, it it behooves us to change the parameters before then so that there isn't this this catastrophic, um, you know, hard stop where the, the government just can't send out the checks. Um, right. But I, I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm very cynical about this. I don't think we're going to have that conversation until the checks stop going out, because like. Yeah, you're right. It's just people, and, and rightly so, people just don't trust the priorities of the government. They don't trust their, their I want to say rulers, because that's what they are. They don't, they're not really, it's not, we don't really have that kind of accountability that comes in a democracy, but they certainly don't trust people um, 
to spend money wisely or to care about their priorities. And so having that conversation, I think, is basically a dead end. Am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. Um, And that's, again, why we're kind of trapped. And it's like a very hackneyed thing to say, but we're trapped in this like austerity or socialism. Um, And instead of, again, it sounds like I'm literally calling for a third way, but I'm not saying like go for centrism or or anything like that. Third way fascist. (laughs) I just mean there has to be. um, and, And actually, I was reading... Uh, a post, it was on the Heritage Foundation's website, they must have published this in the 90s, um, about Reagan's deficits. And they asked this list of questions, like, they said, you know, the Reagan deficits caused the prosperity of the 90s, created the prosperities of the 90s. Um, and they were also deficits because this was money that was being used to win the Cold War and to prevent, as the Heritage author put it, possibly millions of people from dying in a nuclear conflict. Um, and it's you can kind of see the parallel to that question where, as you say, like the checks stop coming, checks stop coming, and that's when it gets uh, intense and urgent. Um, and I think it'll be like that. I mean, I think we'll be a point where we're like a couple years away from it and things get urgent and we come up with something. Um, but it has to be something that's like palatable, obviously. It has to be something that's that's not just one side or the other um and because both neither side right now has a, has a good solution to it it's the same thing with healthcare. we're just stuck in these ruts and you and i talk about this a lot i feel like this thematically comes up a lot like we just get stuck in these ruts because um actually of the way the way social media organizes our discourse and incentivizes our discourse um I, it's just it's like, again like i feel like I, I feel like i sound like ralph nader here um but like when it comes to debt and deficits we just don't have a good solution solution. Um, but we do have time to come up with a better solution. Um, because again, it's already a monumental, an insane amount of money. Um, so we don't want to add to it, but we're already dealing with a massive problem. Um, so, you know, you can, you can eat around the edges of discretionary spending and you can shrink the size of the executive branch. I think that's great to the extent Republicans are going to do it because it tests this new, uh, I think, philosophy that conservatives should have, which is that we just don't want small government. There's the, we we just don't want small government for the sake of small government, for the sake of corporate interests who can then rape uh, the culture and uh, people's finances. We want small government for the sake of human flourishing and human freedom and your ability to make your own decisions in a techno dystopia. Um, So I think it's to that extent, um, they're testing something, or I think they're about to test something. We'll see how it actually uh, plays out. That could be really beneficial. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see the 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 budget. I guess the budget fight's tied to issues that seem more immediate, um, where we don't have so much ground to make up in terms of of um, you know convincing the American people. Uh, like on on an issue like social security, right? I, I would like to see these budget cuts be focused on um, the specific actions of agencies that are deeply unpopular. Um, I'd like to see it focused on those eighty seven thousand IRS agents, which I think will will come up in a lot of these debates. Excuse me. Bless you. <laughs> um, but I I I really do think like it would be foolish for us to make this stand now like that's my gut instinct of how these these fights are going to go they're just going to go the way that they did during the tea party era why why would it be any different 
Well, and that's the risk. Like they had, uh, I think it was Mike Rogers. Um, he was some camera person got him um, on tape saying people are coming up to me telling me they want to work longer. And it's like, okay, listen, maybe, uh, first of all, I doubt anybody's ever said that. If they did, it would probably be, you know, somebody who retired, market wasn't so great and is, is looking to get back into it. Nobody's coming up there. Uh, saying, yeah, I'll probably live till I'm 90. So I'm just, you know, really working on a way to be sure that I'm still at a desk or, you know, uh, laying bricks when I'm 80. Like literally nobody is coming up to him and saying that. Um, and it's like, that's the kind of thing when you're being asked by a reporter about your plans for social security. Um, I think there are still a lot of Republicans that are in, especially on the House, or especially, well, I shouldn't say especially on the House side, um, but it's on both the House and the Senate side that are still stuck in 2012, are still stuck in 2010, are still stuck uh, in, in 1996 for that matter, despite the fact that the circumstances of this country have changed. Um, if you want to create a country where you don't have uh, the summer of 2020 again, um, you have to think much more creatively and you have to get out of that rut um, because otherwise you're just you're going to look like <laughs> people are coming up to you and saying, please let me labor on behalf of the corporations more um, because I just can't stop giving all of my time to uh, black and Decker, whatever. Um, so it, it just, they, that's the thing. Like, do I think there are, there are a handful of people who are going to do this right? Yes. Um, do I think the the real risk is that a hand, the rest of them aren't? Uh, yeah. Like it's, I, I think Republicans are about to look, some are about to look really good and some are about to look really bad. Um, and uh, thankfully, I think Kevin McCarthy, for Republicans and conservatives, uh, people who care about these issues being handled uh, correctly and with a conservative approach, um, is somebody that really does understand the populists um, and does really understand his right flank. Uh, because he's a career, he's a he's an opportunist, right? So he he knows where the political winds are blowing, um, and so that's a, a, almost a good thing. And that you know he knows he has to placate both sides here. And until those bridges totally burn up, um, we could see some interesting stuff from him. Uh, actually, after you know maybe along the lines of JD Vance. So let's let's turn a little bit more to the cultural side of things because frankly, and, and I think these two things are connected, right? Like I would like to see the Republican party fight in a smart way on these cultural issues, which as you say, are not, it's not like they're wholly divorced from the budget. I mean, there are so many places in the budget in which we are essentially funding one side of the culture war, uh, the left side of the culture war. And education is a, a really easy starting point to that conversation, but there are I mean, literally every agency is funding um, cultural conservatives' opponents in the culture war. Like the woke machine is largely funded by government, um, and part of that is because they're not, you know, ideologically opposed to it. And conservatives, I think, need to uh, update their battle plans. Um, but there's enormous benefit potentially in stripping funds um, from some of these projects that are essentially like getting an unfair boost in these culture wars uh, from the taxpayer who is at minimum 50-50. And on a lot of these issues, it's more like 80-20, right? Um, but but all of our tax dollars are funding these uh, one side of, of those culture wars. But 
Um, speaking of, of the culture wars, I, I recently got an invitation um, to speak at this um this I had never heard of this organization before, um, but it, it it sounds like it's just uh, relatively recent. Um, but it, it's basically a, a an organization that's trying to do a little bit more what the FedSoc what FedSoc did in the legal space, um, but connecting socially conservative students in the Ivy League. And I, I do think that's a really great um, sort of project because so many of the formal right-wing organizations really do give short shrift to cultural issues. A lot of them are functioning, functionally libertarian. Um, and so I think this is like a really good idea. Um, and that was, that was furthered by uh, the fact that I got what I think is the best prompt question I've ever gotten. And, and I, Emily, I know at NatCon and elsewhere, you, you've repeated, um, essentially a laundry list of issues of, of deep cultural uh, catastrophes for the United States that are just not really part of our politics, right? Um, or, or if they are a part of our politics, they're sort of tangential, right? And um, so I, I got this question and I wanted to pose it to you because um, obviously I gave my answer. My, my friend David Azrad gave his answer. He's been on the podcast, but um, I'm really curious what your answer would be to this question. So here, here's the prompt. It has become common knowledge that most marriages now end in divorce. Uh, that I'm, by the way, I put an asterisk on that. I don't think most marriages end in divorce, but the divorce rate is high. Let's let's. Um, that trust in educational institutions is extremely low. That Generation Z uh, suffers from a crippling buff- buffet of mental health issues. But what about the way that we are encouraged to live our lives causes this deep and lifelong unhappiness? What are the challenges families face, and how do we build healthier ones? There's so much going on in that question. I agree. It's a wonderful question uh, because the first part is sort of like, what is it about the world that we live in that creates these problems? And the second part is like, what about what what can be done to help families? And I think there's also, uh, again, this is where the conservative movement suffers from, I think this happens on the left too, but suffers from that reflexive uh, sort of landing in the same rut. Um, where it's like, okay, well, child tax credit. Cool. (laughs) We can debate the validity of the child tax credit. Um, and it can be one part in a suite, uh, a package of things that are done to boost the American family. But if your answer is child tax credit, um, if that's your your big answer, uh, man, uh, we're in trouble. Um, you know, I, I think there's one of the big things that needs to be considered going forward is, uh, obviously there are age limits on pornography and obviously social media companies, um, have age limits, uh, that they, they have parameters for age. But when I think about the average American family, um, and when I think about what might be causing tension and pain and strife in their lives, uh, I think about pornography and I think about most of all social media and smartphones. And I think there's a way to really constitutionally, um, make very robust and, and require very robust age verification practices for uh, for for pornography websites um, and for things as simple as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, all those things. Because you know, the 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 problems with Generation Z that are baked into the prompt of that question are not just Generation Z problems. They're causing issues um, for for schools. They're causing issues for. Uh, 
you know, your soccer teams, your community, they're causing issue for parents, um, for family units, of course. So, and, and we don't even know. I mean, this is an experiment running in real time. These kids are literally guinea pigs. Um, and so we need to start thinking about how to prepare for the guinea pigs entering, you know, the, the workforce entering, uh, adulthood period. And so those are two really big ones that, um, are come to my mind off the bat. I think, um, what you've talked about in terms of higher education, uh, just basically p- punishing colleges uh, for all of the harm that they've done and that they continue to do in a way that also uh, it maybe routes people towards better options that aren't insanely expensive. I mean, hopefully it brings down the price of college, but uh, better options that aren't insanely expensive. Um, and I, this is just in the policy arena. Like there's just so much we could talk about in terms of the culture. I don't know if you want to get into that, but like, what would that you, sort of, I don't know if you want to get into what that might look like. Yeah, no. The, and when I was reading this prompt and thinking about it, like the first thing I thought of is uh, your list of issues uh, in, in the speech you gave at NatCon um, that essentially may or may not, a lot of them have some plug to um, public policy in the same way that you talked about the child tax credit, but public policy very clearly is not the beginning and end of these issues. So um, some of those issues that you brought up were uh, the, the skyrocketing deaths of despair, right. Um, and, and addiction, um, mm-hmm. the, the fragility, the mental fragility um, of basically people under the age of 30, um, being unable to cope. Part of this, of course, is political, right? Part of it is um, a culture that encourages and a political culture that for political reasons encourages uh, that kind of, of identity politics and fragility and victimhood Olympics. But there also seems to be something real there. And I think their third your third sort of bucket was tech, right? Social media and pornography, Um and all of these things, I, I don't know, like these things all seem to come together to to basically create a life script, mm-hmm. um, a kind of modern life of Julia, right? Uh, whereas if, if that's a, an old throwback reference, and for those who <laughs> don't remember the life of Julia, um, there were these ads, I think it was when Obama was running for the yeah, second the, time. Yeah, second time, yeah. Um, but it was the life of Julia, and it showed how at every stage of her life, um, government was stepping in. Well, it seems to me that we need an update to the life of Julia, right? It's not just about the fact that the, uh, you know, the welfare state steps in. It's this this script that we are doing out to people is clearly making people unhappy. And that script is, you know, go to, uh, you know, first of all, starting from from the basics, you're much less likely. America has a staggeringly high uh, rate of children who are not being raised by their married parents. Mm-hmm. And even compared to compared to the whole world, not just to like, for example, European countries, uh, also to, you know, third world countries. I mean, America, we are truly a leader in this, this horrible metric. So you are less likely to be raised by your married parents in the same household um, than almost anywhere else in the world. Um, and then from that environment already, uh, you know, not ideal, you're put into a education track that divorces you further from um, the past, uh, from your family, from any pride in your country, um, that that views any future or posterity as, as hostile. Um, and you, you go through this educational track uh, all the way through college where um, you are 
hopefully radicalized and made into a, a little activist. That's if you <laughs> maintain uh, your your birth sex and your ability uh, to have enjoyable sex and, and eventually procreate. Um, the, the lucky people who do maintain that that ability. Right. You go into the corporate world where the incentives are largely similar. Um, the <laughs> culture is largely similar. You, you spend your your 20s um, swiping and screwing. Right. Uh, but you don't you don't form <laughs> that kind of meaningful and deep relationships that increasingly. I mean, all of this to say is that the, the good life as we are sold it today is one that encourages atomization. And we have this increasing body of understanding both from the the um social science perspective and just from the observational like basic common sense perspective that atomization is probably the great evil of modern life and it's what's making people very unhappy um, and that's well sorry i was gonna say partially that's where we need inventions and there there's room for industrial policy here um th that's why we need inventions and initiatives that uh, recognize the moment that we're in is one in which we've sort of crossed the tech rubicon um and i talk about this usually like within the sweep of time post printing press uh, you could probably go back a little bit earlier uh, depending on how many years you think humans have have walked the face of the earth um, it's still a very small time period that we've had uh, okay first of all social media let alone the smartphone let alone uh, email let alone internet let alone television let alone photography let alone mass printing uh, so you can just sort of keep going back and back um, and so we need to have public policy initiatives uh, but also public private partnerships that are are happening specifically to say for every new technology, it's like what we do with wetlands. With every new technology, we need to come up with a way. Um, I don't know what it, what it would be in every case, but like the light phone has now emerged. You can connect your, they're selling it on Goop actually. It was a Kickstarter that I was uh, following for years, but for a couple hundred bucks, you can get a phone. Um, and I know the government had nothing to do with this, um, but you can get a phone that connects to your smartphone, uh, but all it does really is text. It has maps on it. It's black and white. It doesn't even have snake on it yet. Um, and basically catapults you back to, you know, 2007. Um, you can text on it, all of that good stuff. So like there has to be a recognition, uh, public and of public and private par partnerships that the government is going to hold you responsible if you're creating inventions that are uh, unhealthy and that are uh, designed specifically to be used in unhealthy doses. Um, and that the government then is going to find ways to make competitors to that competitive um, because we know that, you know, the sort of the, the market can't always solve that problem. If we are being, uh, if, if we're, if it's like tobacco, right, where you're, you're intentionally being addicted. Now, do I think tobacco is overregulated? Yes. And maybe someday tech will be overregulated. And I will say, let's, you know, peel back. Let's Let's pull some of this regulation back, but we're nowhere even near that right now. So all that is to say, we—I mean, we didn't even touch on the one really big thing. Um, you were probably getting to it, and I interrupted you very rudely. But the one thing that's like barely in our political domain at all is big ag, is is food and farming and health. I mean, if there's one thing that's making the daily life of the average American significantly worse other than fatherlessness, it's obesity. Um, it, it, the, the rates of obesity and obesity-related complications in this country are on us every single day. If we ate better food and and spent more time uh, moving, I'm not even just talking about outside, I just mean like physically moving. These are places where you can have public-private initiatives to come up with you know something that counters the Zoom job. If you're on a Zoom job, there, there's studies that show indigenous people, people who are still largely living the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, 
get about 15,000 steps a day. So think of how many, you know, Zoloft prescriptions you could get rid of if we changed the norms, both through political and cultural avenues, so that the average person realizes it's not just those like 60 minute lame guidelines of, of physical activity that they told us when we were kids and as, um, but like there are products in your life that say, okay, this isn't just about this. We realize now that we are sitting watching TV and we're working at computers because the economy is different. So maybe, you know, offices give you little bikes under your desk. Like it sounds ridiculous, but we need to have um, human technology, humane technology. Um, and we're not there yet. And we're, we're almost to the point where we recognize that the technology has to be modified to be humane. Um, and, and when we hit that point, there's a, a, a huge universe for the culture and for politics to um, come up with new things we haven't even thought of. If you enjoy High Noon, please consider tuning in to Federalist Radio Hour, a daily podcast hosted by none other than one of my regular guests, Emily Jashinsky. The Federalist team of fearless journalists, including Molly Hemingway, Eddie Scary, and David Harciani, all join in the fun, breaking down politics and culture through interviews with politicians, entertainers, and thought leaders. It's smart, irreverent, provocative, and on the cutting edge of American political thought. Emily interviews thinkers from the right, the center, and even the left. The show covers every topic imaginable from niches like data privacy and immigration to big picture issues like feminism. If you want to be part of the conversation, don't miss Federalist Radio Hour, available every weekday whenever you download your podcasts. So as always, I'm sort of in agreement with the way that you talk about hyper novelty and tech and also in disagreement with the central placing of it, because it, it really does strike me that there is something more existential uh, at the base of this. And in fact, and that's why I think I was pointing to atomization. I think loneliness and atomization is definitely accelerated by tech. But I think a lot of the on the flip side, it's also true. There's a chicken and egg thing where like if if we had stronger families and stronger communities, we could assimilate this kind of technology in a more humane way. And one of the reasons that we're stuck, um, we're stuck hurtling towards this future that you describe as inhumane, which I think is rightly um, described as inhumane, is because there is something more um primary broken and i don't even think it's it's just american culture um or even western culture i mean i, I think we are working through some very um philosophical level sort of, I, I think we're we're kind of in the throes the death throes of of uh you know the christian west um and we are very rapidly approaching a post-Christian society, but by which I do not mean at all, by the way, the, the longer term trend to, you know, towards the nuns, N-O-E-N-O-N-E. -E. Um, but like in a more broad-based way, um, we are in many ways reverting to some uh, pre-Christian norms in culture, except updated with tech. Um, I don't know. I just, I just can't, I can't get away from the, the idea that there is something more existential here happening that in fact, yes, technology drives us further and faster towards some of our own destruction, but that impulse is in us, right? Like the, the, the fundamental problem here is that prosperity breeds atomization, that a lot of these communities, um, were not always pleasant to be a part of, and there's a short term preference for individualism that 
not just in the United States and not because of Thomas Jefferson, right? (laughs) Across the the world, we see this as increasingly more and more societies basically get beyond scarcity, that this level of prosperity creates the ability and for us to execute on something that we want very much in the short term and feels very good in the short term and then creates a whole host of problems on the back end. And I, I very much feel like our politics does not directly address this in any way. And it is a political problem because the the people, especially in, in a uh, you know country that purports to be a democracy, um, like obviously this is going to change the population. Um, it's going to change the way we think about all of those issues, whether it's social security or anything else. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that we, you know, we needed social security because people were not able to rely on their families to avoid scarcity. Now they don't need to rely on their families or social security for the most part to avoid the kind of scarcity that people were the most terrified of, which is starving on the street. Um, so, I I, I tend to think there's something bigger here with just we have gotten so rich that we can give vent to one of our worst human impulses, which is to not tolerate the short term negative consequences of human connection and then pretend and then like basically suffer from not having those connections on the back end. But it's very difficult to link up those two feelings, right? We, and, and you can go throughout history and find civilizational decline. And, and one thing I think probably is a mistake that I make sometimes is not clearly in conversations about technology, framing it as though correctly, technology is a fact of life. It's not like there's before technology and after technology. As long as humans are on the earth, what they are creating and inventing is new forms of tech. It's new technology that makes life easier, that makes life different. Um, and so you could people can probably make arguments about how what we would never consider tech um, brought down the Roman Empire uh, and, and you know caused decline in, in other civilizations. And I think fundamentally, uh, you're absolutely right. It's about our humanity, uh, pe- people being brought down by their humanity. And I think you can make a sort of chicken or egg argument there. But what worries me and the w- the reason that I always locate tech so centrally is because if you are too sick and fat and addicted um, to your, your phone and to a screen uh, to be able to think rationally, about these things. So it, it would be like if we had to make our personal and uh, political decisions um, on a cigarette, right? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, these, these are products that are designed to eat away at your ability to be a rational actor. Um, they're, they're like chemically engineered our food. How many times have you heard uh, once you pop, you just can't stop. That's the Pringles thing. Well, they made it that way. <laughs> like you can't, you can't really just do that with a blueberry. Um, you, you, they have technology that has allowed them to like make chips addictive uh, beyond. So, uh, that's what worries me. And that's why I always locate it centrally is because do you get to a point where it's idiocracy to, to be like an Xer and quote, uh, or, or to reference a, one of their favorites? Um, even though it's like quaint when you look back on it now, but you're too, you, you are, you, you lack, um, the capacity for reason, um, sort of broadly. 
as a population, not that individuals still can't act reasonably and, and people can't still, you know, find a way to be reasonable in their everyday lives. But uh, there's a lot of really frightening evidence about what, what food and phones in, in particular are doing to our decision making capacity. Um, and that's why I locate it centrally. But I, I don't think you're wrong at all that uh, fundamentally, we are always trying to kind of overcome our humanity, right? To be human without having to, uh, you know, to, by being able to atomize, right? And not having to deal with the connectiveness um, or the, the connections and not having to, um, you know, the not having to eat as much or not having to do X, not having to have sex in monogamous relations, whatever it is, we're always trying to overcome our humanity. Um, now we're facing, I think, more powerful uh, forces. Um, but yeah, like the chicken or the egg thing, I think ultimately comes down to, uh, problems with, with being human. Um, I also think we're seeing kind of the ultimate in, in the part of this question that was pointing to the fragility and sort of escalating mental health issues of Gen Z. I think we're kind of seeing the tail end, the failure of, of the therapeutic answers to these questions. Um, and here I'm thinking about this absolutely, depressing tweet that went viral uh, of somebody basically saying um, like, you should never ask your friends to help you move. Like, why would you impose that on your friends? Um, And obviously that's just one. I mean, it's not that important in itself, but I remember and I cannot find for the life of me, I was trying to find it. uh, There was this New York times article that went viral also, but this was maybe a year and a half ago, basically saying like how to tell when your friend is relying too much on you emotionally, like how to tell them to basically like screw off, right? Um, how to like set boundaries in your friendships. And obviously there's something real in all of this, right? There, there how to are- quiet quit a friendship. Right. Um, you know, there's something real in all of this. Like there are people who are, um, you know, sort of emotional vampires and drain you of, of a will to live. Right. Very um, self-aware of you and as very self-aware. <laughs> um, no, but I find it like very depressing, this entire um, sort of discourse around the way that it's bec- it's becoming like it's being framed as pathological in order, like any kind of dependence or, um, you know, reliance, emotional reliance on a relationship, whether that's a romantic relationship or a friendship Mm -hmm. or family relationship, right? Any kind of like actual connection is being framed Mm -hmm. as pathological or needy. And I think that that's like, anyway, I was thinking about all of these questions as I was watching this stuff go viral. Like, oh, you can't, you can't ask your friends to to help you move. I mean, like, why not? Like, (laughs) um, that's insane. I, I mean, like moving is the most miserable thing in the world. Um, and so the, the joy is bringing your friends into the misery. Yeah. Well, no, but it, look, I'm not saying everybody has to ask their friends to move, like, especially as you get older, like, people tend to hire movers, whatever. But like the idea that it's somehow an imposition or a horrible, like act as a friend to ask like, Hey, would you help me, you know, box up some stuff or move some boxes? Like the idea that you can't reach mm-hmm. out to somebody who's a friend to ask for anything without it being sort of um, an imposition that is, is unwarranted by friendship. Um, I think it's really depressing. Um, So I I do think we're kind of seeing the conclusion of all of this therapeutic stuff, right? Like they're basically telling people not to have deep relationships or rely on other people in the form of, in the guise of sort of therapeutic boundaries, right? Like you are not a healthy (laughs) psychological person. um, If you 
have any reliance on other people. Um, and I just thought that was kind of the, the, the eclipse, the tail end of um, all of this stuff that started out supposedly about discovering your your true self and understanding your true emotions and your Freudian impulses or whatever has now come in the tail end of you have no right uh, or, or it is a, a psychologically impul- um, unhealthy impulse to rely on other people in any way. And I just it's amazing. That that's kind of a, a very bizarre arc to this, but in some way, very predictable. Well, and it makes me think this is going to sound like a super bizarre transition, um, but it makes me think of Ozempic. And I don't know if you've been following the Ozempic controversy, but Ozempic, I believe it's like prescribed for uh, serious cases of obesity and I think maybe diabetes, um, but well, thyroid it to kids well no. no so that might be a component of it but what i've read is that rich women are getting ozempic prescriptions um you sort of in the same way that maybe they got benzos or something in the past um they're they're able to because they have good doctors and they sort of talk to each other um go in and get a prescription for this like miracle weight loss drug um that apparently has some pretty potentially bad side effects um, or just, you know, unpleasant and uncomfortable side effects, but because women need that so badly. It's not that women are so vain. I mean, I think that's been an easy take that a lot of people have run with. It's that like actually a lot of women, if they're not clinically obese, like are probably like want to lose, you know, 15, 20 pounds for good reason because we're so sedentary. Um, and it's like causing people a lot of issues <laughs> because it's, it just reminds me of Zoloft. It reminds me of, um, you know, Prozac. And we're dealing with these issues in the same way that we've dealt with friendship by Facebook. We're dealing with these issues with sort of like synthetic band-aids. Um, and I feel like you're right that we're becoming self-aware about that impulse that we're starting to realize. I mean, if you just look at the, what the most popular podcast in the world talks about, and I'm talking about Joe Rogan, um, the most, like his subject matter all the time is like pro-human. It's sort of like, how do I, um, how can I feel healthy and happy as a human being um, without, you know, popping pills or, you know, scrolling uh, social media. And that's a really, I think that's a really positive thing and totally confirms what you were just theorizing that like we're shifting from this, you know, talk your way out of it with a stranger. Um, you take some, take a pill, use Facebook, whatever it is. I, I feel like we're becoming aware that that's likely not healthy. Um. Well, I can't let you go without asking you about something that I find psychologically damaging to look at, and that's the <laughs> MLK Memorial in the Boston Commons. I was in Boston this weekend. There was a stack <laughs> of person? local... There, I didn't get to see it in person, but there was a stack of local papers that had a big picture of the statue on them uh, that absolutely nobody was taking or touching. And I thought that was hilarious. Nobody wanted to commemorate the unveiling of the beautiful statue. <laughs> so for people who haven't seen this, it's called the Embrace. Um, it's just these disembodied hands. I mean, it's based off of Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King. Um, the famous photo of them hugging, which is such a, you know, sort of human moment that has been turned into this completely inhuman structure, which from some angles absolutely looks pornographic and like from other angles just hurts my brain. Like it hurts my brain to look at it. Like my brain is trying to fit it 
to make it actually like make sense. And it doesn't from most <laughs> angles. Um, but it, it seems like there was this very vigorous outcry against this. Um, not only from sort of the chattering classes, although there is a great um, piece in Compact Magazine um, by, I think, what was his name? I'll look it up. But he, so he's, he's a relative of Credit Scott King's um, mm. on, I think the Scott side. And he was, he was talking about sort of the proud history of that family and how this is an insult to, um, to his family to have this, this memorial. Um, but I mean, there, there's certainly engendered a lot of sort of controversy and, and pushback. Um, so I guess one, what do you think about this? Um, statue, just give me your straight up, uh, sort of thoughts on it. But then also what, what does it say, um, about us and, and sort of one public art always says something about us, right? Um, this is installed in a public place. It's mostly privately funded, but it's installed in a prominent public place. Um, I would call it public art for that reason. So what does Mm -hmm. it say about Mm us? Um, and, and put it in context to the fact that we're tearing down so many of our previous public art and replacing it with this. It's really painful. And I just looked up the compact magazine piece. It's called a masturbatory homage to my family. And an homage is in quotes and the author is Seneca Scott. Um, I'm eager to read that because it sounds excellent. And it, it actually mirrors the perspective of some of our favorite podcasters who were like, well, it's actually perfect because that's what postmodernity is, is a giant, giant circle jerk. Um, and <laughs> oh, they said that on, uh, that was this thing looks like, um, that's it. Yeah. If you had put that as the title, I would not question it. <laughs> well, yeah, and there's just like, I mean, there's there's so much to talk about here. Um, and I don't know what the Compact Magazine piece gets into. I'm curious because one of the things that I think is uh, how bizarre it is to honor Martin Luther King Jr.'s public contributions. I was thinking about, like, I know that people pick at Martin Luther King Jr. for some really good and interesting reasons. I think what he means to most Americans is what he said in the I Have a Dream speech, and that is a lovely, just quintessentially American, uh, borderline perfect speech. And if that's what he means, if, if I'm correct that that's what he means to most Americans, I think that's wonderful. Um, but he, his marriage is not one of the things that I would honor, because <laughs> it's not one of the things that he historically honored, uh, thanks to uh, the good work of J. Edgar Hoover. I'm kidding, of course, when I say good work. Uh, it was terrible work, but nonetheless, we uh, seem to have a pretty good indication that it's like we're just totally in this muddle where we're honoring Martin Luther King for the weirdest reason, um, because this is supposed to be an embrace after he won or accepted the Nobel Peace Prize. And I get that. Nobody knows this picture. It's not iconic um, enough at all to warrant a, a sculpture. Uh, and second of all, like it's just a weird, weird thing, uh, a weird thing to latch onto when it comes to Martin Luther King Jr. to the point of being nonsensical. Um, and it is public art. And what's so jarring about looking at it is that from one of the angles I saw, um, what you see in the background are the, the sort of beautiful streets across the, across the street from the Boston Commons where you have um, some really old, gorgeous early American architecture and granted, there's some modern buildings, you know, in between, uh, but just beauty. And it's in the shadow now, or, or what's in its shadow is uh, something that, you know, probably even adjusted for inflation costs way more. <laughs> and it looks like absolutely, it's just arms. If you're going to remove the head and the body, um, 
you have to like there's there's just no reason for doing it in this case ostensibly to the average consumer of that piece of art if you're going to say what i want the person to focus on is the the form of the embrace um you're losing the rest of the their figure i mean it just it's it makes no sense um but it, it to the extent that i mean it does make sense to the extent that it is just masturbatory that it is a, a um nonsensical act of uh, postmodern masturbation uh, that contributes nothing other than a, a an homage to our like civilizational decline and you know that in this case that's not hyperbole because everyone from like NPR um to like other liberals are upset about it <laughs> you know um I, i've so there's a similar well not quite as bad because it doesn't look like a penis but um <laughs> There's a similar, so they just completed a monument to uh, the slaves that built UVA, Mm. Um, which on on the face of it, I don't, you know, I think it it, it would be a good thing to to build a monument. Um, And so UVA, uh, for those who don't know, um, your alma mater, Thomas Jefferson, yeah, my my law school, my alma mater. Um, But this is the main campus, by the way, not not the law school campus where this this thing can be found. Um, but but the the main campus is constructed uh, on basically uh, principles of architecture and beauty uh, that were put into place by Thomas Jefferson and Monticello, right? Um, and so it's it's a beautiful campus, absolutely beautiful, and was largely constructed, as it turns out, by slaves. Um, and so I think it's actually it would have been wonderful to put a monument up if you actually like learned something about the people who constructed this beautiful campus. But the, the contrast was almost insulting. I felt like to the people who had built this beautiful campus. Um, instead, it's just this circlet in the ground that looks like, I don't know. It, it looks like uh, just like a piece of the ground has been sort of burned away in UVA. Mm-hmm. You can look it up. Um, even the the sort of promo pictures of it, um, are just hideous, right? It's very difficult to feel in any way um, respectful or uplifted looking at it. Um, and so I don't know what their point with that was other than, I guess if they wanted to highlight the fact that the enslaved craftsmen who built UVA were much more talented than the <laughs> modern artists who are being paid millions of dollars uh, to construct this memorial, then I guess the point was well made. Um but but the the deeper point I wanted to, to uh, respond because I think you you touched on something that is really important, which is like th- this actually this debate over Martin Luther King and and you're right every Martin Luther King Day we have this debate and and um, I mentioned David Azarad earlier he wrote a, a piece basically saying no you know um, not only did Martin Luther King uh, Jr. subscribe to um, certain socialist programs that's trotted out every year by both the right and the left, right? The left, the left says Martin Luther King was a socialist. We need to follow his dream and be socialists. And the right says Martin Luther King was a socialist. That's bad. Right. Um, But, (laughs) but um, David points out some other things, right. That, that uh, in, in various writings and speeches, he does sort of foreshadow a lot of, um, the more modern uh, identity politics, uh, the the idea that disparities need to be rectified with further discrimination, things that that really do undermine um, at least somehow of the sentiments of the speech you're referencing and some of his more famous speeches. Um, 
or or at least at least our intention with the ideas in those speeches, right? Uh, but I think you made a really important point, which is we honor people for a specific contribution, and this is something the left has been wholly unable to understand with regard to our Woody our, Allen, our heroes of well. Woody Allen for sure, but um, but are, are, are the heroes of, of sort of the American past, right? They, they nobody has built a statue for Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves, right? That is a fact about his life. We can read about it, you know. We can we can place it in context of the time, um, and we can condemn it. But that's not why anyone has built a statue of Thomas Jefferson, right? Um, we honor people with public honor for a specific purpose. Um, and sometimes if for a particularly great man, there may be a list of, of, of purposes um, that we're honoring him for. But but I think you, you really touched on something important there when you said that's not why we build statues, hopefully better ones, um, <laughs> to Martin Luther King, right? Uh, we, we build those statues because of the idea that he introduced um, in those speeches that does really uh, accord with the American dream that did provide a way forward for tumultuous race relations in this country. Right. Um, and that was an incredible accomplishment. And for that, we honor him. We don't honor him because he cheated on his wives. We don't honor him because of some of his other radical political views. We honor him for that contribution. And that's the purpose of this public honor. Right. Instead of now, we're just in this period where we, nothing has has meaning because the meaning is always being challenged and muddied um, by the left that refuses to accept the grounds of, of objectivity and to the point that it's not interesting anymore. Uh, you know, like nothing is is interesting if if everything is the same. Um, and if there's if if they commission a ten million dollar piece of art and get private funding for it um, in Boston. To honor Martin Luther King Jr., you know, you should probably put some work into making sure it comes out all right. <laughs> like, if you look at the the patron system that's always existed for for artists, there was a lot of um, it just this this idea that all art must be nonsensically abstract. It's so I was going to say modern, but so postmodern, and we do it in so many different areas of life now that instead of asking. Um, you know, what does the statue convey? It's just like, so what? It's going to convey something different to everyone. Um, and that's not an acceptable answer. It's not an acceptable use of, of precious public land like that of the Boston Commons um, and precious resources. Um, the stuff it has to, has to, you know, we've, we've lost all concept of what is sort of human, what moves most people, um, what grabs the eyes of most people, what inspires most people, what's beautiful to most people. And that's getting like really, I, I sound like um, Azarad now, uh, but it, you know, it's it, what is beauty, what is good. Um, obviously there are so many deeper problems in our civilization where you can't define good because truth is, is relative. And that to me, I always see that as, as something that was induced by technology um, to, to the sort of mainstream position that it is now uh, around the kind of turn of the century. Um, and you know, Nietzsche was a big part of that. And, uh, it, it sort of went from there. But we're not even like we're so far gone that nothing makes sense anymore. And people are dying for it to make sense, desperate for it to make sense. So um, if there's like a happy final note to sound, it's that I think you really are right that our awareness um, is gradually, like we are gradually becoming 
self-aware in a good way um, to, to the fact that we're kind of being poisoned by anti-human ideas. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that uh, if no one qualifies for honor and there is no truth, then everyone just honors themselves. And, and that perhaps that's the true message of this, this embrace. It's this circular self-honorific uh, that verges into the masturbatory. So, it's um, so perfect. It's so perfect. <laughs> with, with that sum up, um, Emily Jashinsky, thank you for joining me for yet another episode of High Noon After Dark. Uh, we, love, we love having you. It's so much fun. Um, you can find all of the things that Emily does, uh, either with IWF, where she's a senior fellow, as I said, um, at The Federalist, where she's the culture editor and writes frequently, or at CounterPoints, where she does um, she does a show with Ryan Krim, and then I have to deprogram her from being a Marxist afterwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> Worse than <her>. Marxism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and, and with that, uh, thank you so much to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments or questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>